Wild Precious Life is brought to you by Shelter in Place, a podcast about reimagining life through creativity and community. Is there a word for a friend you've never met? An online soul sister, a kindred spirit. No matter the words I use to describe her, Laura Joyce Davis feels like a friend. Each week on her podcast, Laura shares stories that make me feel like I'm sitting around the coffee table or laughing with my best people. One listener described shelter in place as a warm hug. Others have called it binge-worthy and wonder-filled, like catching up with an old friend. So if you are longing for joy, rest, or beauty, if you are looking for a show that helps us not to escape out of life, but into it, check out Shelter in Place wherever you get your podcasts. Wild Precious Life is brought to you in part by Oblong Books, independently owned and operated bookstores in the Hudson Valley. Since 1975, Oblong has featured a carefully curated collection of books in all genres. Find your next great read and shop online at oblongbooks.com. One of my favorite things about being a mom is that I get to see my kids embrace possibility. I get to watch my daughters dream about heading up their own scientific laboratories and see my son given permission to express his feelings. And of course, vice versa. My goal is for all three of my children to believe in the promise of their own capabilities and power. As proud as I am about my kids' beliefs, I can't really take much credit for creating them. I was late to the gender equity game. Without realizing it, I grew up believing that moms were caregivers and dads were breadwinners. I thought I grew up believing that a girl could be anything and a boy could be anyone, but I didn't really. I knew that girls couldn't be priests or presidents and boys weren't supposed to cry. It has taken me a good deal of my adult life to confront and unlearn these gender stereotypes. My conversation with the writer Elizabeth Lesser today is largely about rewriting some of those scripts that most of us do not even realize we have. Elizabeth Lesser, welcome to Wild Precious Life. Thank you for having me. So I first came to your work through your previous book, Marrow, about your shared journey with your little sister Maggie during her life and and her illness. I've been a care, caregiver for two family members, one who's still living, my little sister, and my father who passed away earlier in this pandemic. And Marrow was a kind of Bible for me. Mm. And if I cry about it now, it's because it was such a profound permission slip about how to weep and scream and be strong and also not strong and to accept the waves of all that came. And I reread it ahead of today's conversation. And I don't know why I was surprised, but I was. I, I cried all over again. <laughs> um, but thank you for sharing your story and Maggie's story. I saw a hawk on a tree branch above my house this morning as I was listening to the birds and hearing a bird call I've never heard before. And all of that felt just right ahead of today's conversation. So thank you for that book. Mm. Um, you, um, Your latest book, which is more that we're talking about today, your latest book, Cassandra Speaks, 
posits this notion that when women are the storytellers, the human story changes. And this book was jaw-dropping for me in these other ways. I read it, and it shook me to the core. I feel like it settled in my DNA and started rearranging in there. And I swear, some days I feel different because of this book. And when a book does that to me, I want to talk to the person who created it. So before I lose my mind and start fangirling about you and your open-heartedness and your mindfulness and your erudite writing, would you mind just answering our opening question, which is simply, would you tell us your story? Yes, but only after I say that might have been the the loveliest introduction ever. You know, I counted recently how many Zoom podcasts or interview or book club meetings I'd attended. It was 107 during the (laughs) pandemic. And it's been amazing. It's been such a beautiful way to connect with people. But I get so tired of people just kind of reading the intro to who I am. And I'm just like, oh, blah, blah, blah. So that was just lovely. Thank you so much. That story about being my sister's bone marrow donor and guiding her and myself through that process and then her loss, the loss of her life, um, makes me cry just hearing that it made you cry and helped you through your beloved's healing and then also your father dying it's um grief is a is a wild ride but as you intimated if you don't take the ride and you try to step around it it doesn't help anything it makes everything slower longer darker weirder so i'm so glad it helped you claim your grief that's beautiful so um My story, well, I was kind of one of those weird little kids uh, in a family of atheists who just desperately wanted to belong to some kind of religion. I I was the kind of kid who, like, I don't know, starting at age four, couldn't fall asleep. And my mother would say, what are you afraid of, the monsters? And I'd be like, no, I'm afraid of death. (laughs) And she'd be like, oh, God, go to sleep. And... (laughs) I was just like driven from the youngest age. Look, this is a really strange thing being human. There's got to be some answers out there. There's got to be some people who are like me, interested. So from a very young age, I was a seeker. I wouldn't say I ever became a religious person as in following a specific set of morals or uh, dogmas, but I have availed myself to every single kind of spiritual path, meditative path, psychological technique, strange journeys and shamanic visions and anything that could help me figure out both the life and death issues, but also look what's happening in our world. We're speaking on a day when Russia invaded Ukraine. And my heart just breaks, like, really still? We're still acting such like such idiots? The, the war has an absolute lose-lose track record. 
what's the problem here? So to me, being a seeker has been both about how do I work with my own inner anxiety and questions, but also how do we get along as a human family? Oh, that's beautiful. I loved your stories of being a little kid sneaking off to go to church with your friends because (laughs) (laughs) most of us who are dragged to church (laughs) were desperate to have the sleepover be on Saturday night so that we could skip church. But my parents would always say, well, we'll we'll pick you up ahead of time. We wouldn't want to miss church. (laughs) I love the idea that that you were pulled toward um, the very thing that most of us as children were desperate to get away from. Though I was also a kid who stayed up late. I read, um, was it Mrs. Brisby and the Rats of Nim? There was a yes. there was a child's bus, bu- book about these mice that were in a field and, and Nicodemus. It had some biblical names, but I remember yes, one of the did. mice died. And I read this book as a child and I was I was um, always wanting to know where the mouse went. And your your parents just say, oh, to heaven, to heaven, it's fine. But I wanted to know the in-between, what happened after you died. And I remember staying up late and positing that kind of question. As Now that I'm a parent, I know that, oh, my parents, they just wanted to go to sleep. They want to talk about these <laughs> things in the morning. Just uh, And what I would do um, is they would put books in front of me. They would say, well, just, mm-hmm. just read and take your mind off of it. We'll talk about it in the morning. And, of course, we never would talk about it in the morning. Right. You just, you just avoid those big questions with children. But one of my favorite things about your work is that you walk us into the big questions, right? You seek answers to the big questions. And we also sit with discomfort. We sit with answers that don't always please us and and hang out there and and call it what it is. We don't say we're going to talk about it in the morning and then not talk about it. We say, let's talk about it right now. Mm. Um, mm-hmm. what, a, what a gift. Your Your latest book... Cassandra speaks. I, I feel like broke me open in in ways. I'm I'm in my 40s, and yet I'm learning the story of Adam Eve. And this this is a story I know. At least I thought I knew. Right? There's Adam. There's Eve. They live in the garden. Everything's perfect, and just God says, "Eat whatever you want, just not that tree." We know that Eve talks to a serpent. She eats from a tree. She shares with Adam, and then boom, original sin. And somehow it's all our fault. I know this story. And yet I'm reading in your book that you're asking us to think about it differently. Can you take us through the story of Adam and Eve? One that even if you're not a Christian, I feel like everyone knows the story. And can you help us to understand it differently? Yeah. First of all, Um, When I started writing this book, Cassandra Speaks, and Cassandra is a Greek mythology, I really have a great love affair with storytelling. I love stories. People learn through stories. The reason my books are about my own life and other people's lives is because there's enough theoretical blah, blah, blah out there. We all sort of know the general idea of what it means to be a good person and how to be a better person and what we should do. But it's the stories that inspire us to actually try to put things into action in our own life. 
I mean, the Bible is full of stories. The myths are stories, movies, novels. This is how humans learn and change. So when I decided to write a book based on my belief that women have been left out of the storytelling to the detriment of everyone, not just women, I went back and made a really massive study of the stories that have moved cultures forward, not just Bible stories, but myths from China and the Middle East and Greece, Europe, fairy tales, and this idea that things were great until the woman came along and screwed it up is not just in the Old Testament. It's in Greek mythology. It's in Chinese mythology. It's, it's um, Pandora, the story of Pandora. So, But we do know Adam and Eve better than other stories, especially those of us Westerners in the Judeo-Christian Islamic world. So yes, as you told it, that's the story. Adam was the first human. He was all alone. There was no Eve. Everything was so great in the garden, the animals, the enough food, the fruits. God liked Adam. It was all fine. But then Adam needed, he, God felt Adam needed a helpmate. Now, I often think that's funny. God was sort of tired of taking care of Adam. So he was like, get someone else in here who'll take care of this very needy fellow. So now, first of all, listen, I'm saying it like this. I'm just a person making it up. But remember, a person made up the Adam and Eve story. Unless you're a Bible literalist, and maybe some of your listeners are, but unless you actually believe the story fell from the heavens fully formed and is from the voice of God. If you believe that, you may want to leave the podcast at the moment. But if you don't <laughs> believe warned. that, if, <laughs> if you believe it's a blessed story and a holy text, but that other human beings wrote it, uh, you have to remember that it came from the perspective of the men of the times who wrote it. So in their perspective, God said Adam needed a helpmate, so he made Eve, and Eve was curious, which is often the cardinal sin of women. Men can be curious, men can go on heroes' journeys and look for wisdom and insight, but when women are curious, like Pandora, who opened the box, she, by the way, was the first Greek mortal woman also, when women are curious and look for wisdom, this is bad. And it was the first example of, of, of women being shamed into not looking for their own perspective on things and insisting that they be taken seriously. So in the, in the days, the biblical days, uh, snakes were actually known as uh, purveyors of wisdom. Snakes were wisdom totem animals. And so a snake was wrapped around a branch of a tree. Let's call it an apple tree. We don't exactly know what fruit it was. And Eve said, uh, we're not supposed to eat that fruit um, because God said, if we ate it, we would be as gods. 
and we would surely die. And the snake said, no, that's not what God meant. God meant, if you ate that, you would be as gods and your ego self would die and you would become wise. And so Eve ate it and offered it to Adam because she wanted to become wise. Now, in the Bible, there are so many men who follow that longing for wisdom, whether it's Noah or um, Solomon or the great kings or Jesus. What did Jesus do to become wise? Oh, my goodness. Everything. He changed everything to the point of dying because of his desire to escape the religion of the day and create a new love-based religion. But the only hero in the Bible who is punished for her curiosity and her desire for wisdom is Eve. And it's the first example of controlling women. That's the way I read the story. Um, And many, many other stories in the Bible and in other holy books are really uh, ways of controlling women. That doesn't mean the Bible is an entirely bad book and shouldn't be read. It's a beautiful book. But it is one group of people's perspective on what it means to be human. I just felt so incredibly reframed as a woman when I started to see these stories I knew. You mentioned Cassandra and Pandora. I had never known Gaetea. Mm-hmm. Galatea, but I knew My Fair Lady and Pygmalion, the the modern takes. So all of these stories that I hadn't realized had landed in my DNA, I'd never thought about the ways in which, as a woman, I've been made to feel less than for things that are actually incredible gifts, that my convivial nature, my loving heart, that these are not seen as... Um, attributes to world leadership. These are not the ways in which we are going to transform our country because I offer you tea and sit with you and listen to your story. Mm. That that mm-hmm. the things that are about me that are womanly, I have often thought of as less than. And I, I went back to these stories in your book and thought about Adam and Eve could have been the story of the wonderful curiosity and the gift of wisdom and, and the the fearlessness, the could have been a story of 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 a woman as um, as a kind of, of of a seeker, like you were talking about, and instead it has been taught to us very different. I'm mm-hmm. that stuck with me. Cassandra is is a story I also knew, but again, I'm I'm not sure all of our listeners know their their myths. So, in what ways is the story of Cassandra? Um, I guess, first off, why don't we just start with what's the story of Cassandra for folks who don't remember their seventh grade mythology class? Yeah, and I like where you were going, though, because it's one thing to know it, and it's one thing to really question, how has that affected me all those years ago? How's it affected all of us, and how's it affected the whole world? So the story of Cassandra is she was a uh, princess, the most beautiful daughter of King Priam in um, Greece, in ancient Greece. And she was from Troy and 
Troy and Greece were enemies. You remember the Trojan War. And um, she didn't want to marry a man. She wanted to serve the gods and goddesses. But she was so beautiful, all the men were off after her. The gods were even after her. Zeus, the king of the gods, and his son, Apollo, and the mortal men, too. So you already know this is a made-up story, unless you believe that Zeus and Apollo were real. Um, so someone was writing this wild tale. And so Apollo offered, as a, his way of wooing Cassandra, the gift of prophecy. He said, I can make you see into the future. You'll be a seer, a prophetess. And she, she wanted this gift. She didn't understand it was coming with a price. So he gave it to her. And then he demanded that she have sex with him in that moment. And she didn't want to. She, had, she did not want to lose her virginity. But he tried to force himself on her and she resisted. And he got so furious that he said, Cassandra, I put a curse on you. Yeah, you will still see into the future, but no one will believe you when you tell it. And so she did see into the future. And of course, she saw terrible things because the Trojan War was on the horizon. She saw all of her family killed. She saw the city burned and in ruins. And she would say this to the people. You better prepare. You better do something to avert this war. And they called her hysterical and crazy. It sort of was the first form of gaslighting. You know that term? That means you see the truth, but you're doubted. So you think, oh my God, am I crazy here? And so, of course, the war happened and it drove her mad this knowing the truth, saying the truth, but being disbelieved. And to answer your question, what does it mean for us? You know, there is a long, long history of women really perceiving this is the wrong way to go, humanity. Like, as you said, why, why isn't my female heart and intuition and capacity for compassion and empathy why isn't that valued? I'm telling you what I see through my, my intuition guided by empathy. Things are not going to go well, whether it's about wars or climate change or children or schools or in our relationships with, with our significant others, our parents, our children, our mates. And we have been disbelieved for centuries, even called crazy and hysterical. So I called the book Cassandra Speaks because while I was writing it, that um, trial with the Dr. Larry Nasser, who was oh the doctor who abused mm -hmm. hundreds of gymnasts and other athletic girls and women, the trial was going on. And the judge, it was a televised trial, and the judge, uh, Dr. Aqua, uh, Judge Aquilina, who was just an amazing woman, just a powerhouse and a take, do not take me as a fool kind of person, she said to the girls, I'm going to see if I can change the rules here so that 
any one of you who wants to speak is listened to because you have been abused twice, once by the deed and twice by not being listened and believed. And I don't know which is worse. I'm going to change that. And she changed the rules in the courtroom and allowed over weeks, hundreds of girls to tell their story. And she made Dr. Nasser listen. And you could see the healing happening on their faces. No one had believed them. Their parents hadn't. Their coaches hadn't. Their universities hadn't. The United States Olympic Committee hadn't. No one had believed them. Over and over, people had said what this man was doing. No one believed them. So I saw them as our Cassandras. I was blown away by their courage and by her vision that listening to and believing women is a form of healing. Oh, it so clearly is. And I thought about that when I read that part of the book. I thought about how that story had often been reported and how I know his name, but I often didn't know theirs. And I assumed, oh, that was to protect the innocence of the victims. But I didn't know that they had had the opportunity to speak up. I didn't know that part of the story until I came to your book, that here were women speaking, saying, you hurt me and it wasn't okay. This is what happened to me and this is what I have dealt with and I have to let it go. And they had the moment to step up to the microphone and be heard. I didn't realize it was over weeks, but of course it would have taken that long. There were so many. The testimony, there's a a, um, documentary film about it. It's on HBO, I think, or Netflix, I don't remember. It's so worth watching because it's so brave and compelling. And and truly, like when people say, well, so you write all this stuff, and how do we undo it? How do we undo it? That's an actual way that the legal system is is finally uh, giving victims a chance to to speak and hold Um, their perpetrator accountable. There's so many ways in which the Cassandra story has legs if we write a brave new ending to it. I love that. Because again, I learned the Cassandra story in my seventh grade mythology class. And I learned that what Cassandra's story taught us was that when women speak, people don't listen. That, That was what I remembered. And I didn't realize that was just down there in my DNA, all of the, that Eve and Cassandra and Pandora, what I learned was that women are trouble, um, women should be quiet, uh, that when we do uh, seek wisdom, we, we usually make the wrong choice, and that even when we do speak up, people aren't going to listen anyway. And all of these are just sitting inside of me, and I didn't realize until I read this book how much unlearning of the woman's story I needed to do. Um, My husband ran for Congress a few years ago, and I helped him with um, writing policy and writing speeches. And I I did a lot of the writing for the campaign because that's what I do. I'm a writer. And one of the things people would ask me is, well, how come you're not running? And I would just say, I don't feel called to it. And it was totally true. I did not feel called to it. But I crawled around inside of it when I read your book and thought, I don't feel called to it because of the way the men I've voted for and elected have done things. I don't feel (laughs) called to it 
because I don't want to lead like that. And the, 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 the story I told myself, and thus, therefore, I am not a leader. But that, that's not true at all. What, what's true is that I don't have enough women I've seen who I've elected, who I've seen do things different. When you mentioned Tammy Duckworth in the book, I, I know who Tammy Duckworth is and how amazing was it to see her or to learn the story of her rolling the wheelchair in with her baby on her lap that it took into, until the last few years till we'd ever had a rule that said, sure, bring your baby to, to the Senate so that you can vote. That, that's recent. We didn't even know. We didn't know that wasn't a rule because we didn't have enough women in situations where they're both giving birth and in positions of leadership. Of course you can do both of those things. Men have been doing it for years. Mind-blowing. Mind-blowing. Hello, and welcome to Guilty Greeny. I feel like we should start off this show by saying it's nearly impossible to be 100% sustainable given the current world we live in. How do you eat an elephant? One bite at a time. Not a great analogy for a vegetarian, but, you know. (laughs) We're talking uh, about sustainability, maybe not the best analogy. (laughs) Don't eat the elephant is the first rule of the guilty green. There's your first challenge of the week. (laughs) Avoid elephants. What they used to call frugal is now considered sustainable. That's such an aha moment. Frugal to sustainable. You can save money and help the planet. That's going to be our new tagline for sure. You can find Guilty Greenie on Apple Podcasts or whichever podcast platform you prefer. And join us in tackling the Guilty Greenie challenges. Until then, stay curiously green. Yeah, I call it doing power differently, that there actually is Uh, I mean, the whole middle section of the book is about power. And we think of word power as almost a dirty word because it's been so perverted and abused and used to hurt and divide what we see going on in the world right now, all over the world. Uh, If that's power, I don't want it. I don't want to walk into that arena. But... um, as the historian in in Britain who wrote a book called Women in Power, um, Mary Beard, it's a beautiful little book, and she says, if 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 women are uncomfortable with power, I'm paraphrasing, I'm not saying it right, but something like this, perhaps it's not women who need to change, perhaps it's power. And, you know, another story I've unpacked recently, I didn't know it before, when I was writing the book, but I love this story. It's very informative. It's a science story. Stories exist in every genre. It's not just literature or myth or religion. Science is almost the religion of the 21st century. And there are lots of science stories that we believe because it's science. And then it turns out it's not true at all. So, or it's not a full story. So. Back in the 1930s and 40s, a, the head of the psychology department at Harvard, Dr. Walter Cannon, um, he wanted to look at what 
do human beings do under stress and conflict? No one had studied this before. And it was just very new that uh, PhD psychologists were bringing people into laboratories and synthesizing experiences and measuring brain waves and blood and hormone levels. So he brought uh, many, many people into his lab. He simulated uh, conflict, stress, things like that. And then he measured their blood and hormones. And he's the man who came up with the phrase fight or flight. Under stress, under duress, under conflict, humans have two responses. You either fight, you aggress, or you flee, both literally run away or you detach. So that became the story. That's what we all think, fight or flight. Oh yeah, you're stressed, fight or flight. So in 2007, I think, a, uh, a clinical psychologist at UCLA, Dr. Shelley Taylor, she and her colleagues were look, studying the, uh, that study, and Shelley Taylor had this aha moment where she noticed all those people that Dr., uh, the Harvard doctor brought into his lab, they were all men. Only men had been studied because only men had been studied for so many medical studies, whether heart disease or cancer. We're just undoing that now to the detriment of women's health. Women had not be, been brought into laboratories. And we have all sorts of different physical attributes from our hormones to our blood levels, to our bones, to everything. So she brought women in. Of course. And I don't see myself in fight or flight. Do you? Do you see yourself in fight or flight? I don't, right? That we tend and befriend. I had never heard that before. Of course, right? We tend and befriend. So she brought women in. And what did she learn? Exactly what you just said. She came up with a new phrase. Phrase. She said, yes, yeah, sometimes women fight or flight. You know, under the most desperate situations, a woman will self-defend or run away. But the majority of time, most women first will have the uh, instinct to tend to the most vulnerable in the room or to create circles of belonging. Like you come home from a stressful day and you don't necessarily want to drink a beer and zone out. You call your friends. You're like, oh my God, you're not going to believe what just happened. Really? That happened to you? Me too. Really? What did you do? Like, just creating, uh, befriending, befriending as a way of tamping down stress and anxiety. So imagine if for the past hundred years, we had known that there's two ways human beings, hello, respond to stress and conflict. Sometimes they fight and flight. Sometimes they tend and befriend. What if we had universities of tending and befriending, like Sign West Point, like Annapolis. <laughs> what if we had that? What if children didn't only have to learn the dates of wars as history, but also tending and befriending type events that, that were called heroic? I am on a campaign <laughs> to make tending and befriending cool and brave and heroic. I love it. 
You can sign me up for coursework at that <laughs> university anytime. No, Let no. Me... You are running for office under the Tend and Befriend Party. Uh, I'm I'm on board. Yeah, I had never <laughs> heard that Tend and Befriend was a thing, but it makes perfect sense to me. Uh, when I'm nervous, I talk. When I'm in a room full of strangers, I seek to connect. And and again, this is an attribute that my entire life, I hadn't even thought of it, has been looked down upon and diminished or at least poked fun at. Oh, are you talking to a stranger again? Come on, it's time to go. Or or you're just yap, yap, yapping. All of those kinds of things. And again, I, it's it's all in good fun. I just had never thought about how that settled in me and what it looked like when it's time to share our ideas. And the first thing I think about mine is, well, it's probably not very good. That imposter syndrome that follows you into a room. You're in a room where you belong, right? I was a writer on a campaign. <laughs> who, who better to talk about the ideas of the campaign than, than the writer on the campaign? But well, I don't know. I mean, you know, I'm just the writer. I'm not sure. And 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 you sit back. Why do you sit back? Because of, of a lifetime being told that these attributes you have aren't really attributes at all. They're just the frivolous nature of women who, when they speak, we don't need to listen to and who, when they act, are probably going to be creating trouble. And I didn't know that I was carrying those stories in my pocket and that these things that other people have told me are, eh, you know, weaknesses can actually be considered, you know, some of my and our greatest superpowers. I was, I tell this story in the book, I'll tell it quickly. I was asked after 9-11, as were a lot of uh, therapists or meditation teachers, mindfulness people, uh, to work with um first responders in New York City who were having a lot of trouble dealing with their PTSD and they actually had to take a course. And I studied the curriculum of what we taught and um, in order to go back into the workforce. And I worked with, for a couple of months, um, firefighters on the Lower East Side in New York City. It was one of the best experiences of my life, one of the most telling and in many ways, one of the sadder experiences, not just because of what they had gone through, but they were great guys. And we had such great camaraderie. They were hilarious and they thought I was funny and we got along very well. And um, every time I would try to bring them into a space where they could, instead of fighting or fleeing, they could maybe get in touch with their softer hearts, their tending and befriending instincts, and share with each other what they were going through and what it felt like on that day or what they couldn't talk to their wives and children and friends about and what the heck was going on in them. And I kept trying to impress upon them with all sorts of statistics of heart disease and divorce of what happens when you can't do what you were just saying, talking you know, women talk too much. This idea that there's something about talking that is uh, a, a less than kind of human expression and the strong and silent type, that's courage. 
it was trying to break down that strong and silent type mythology for them for their own sake. And at one point, one of the guys came up to me and said something like, I know you're right. I know you're right about this, but I'm not going to do it. And none of us are going to do it. And and I know I'd be happier. And I know I'm going to lose my wife if I don't do it. But I can't do it because that's not what men do. And that's not what first responders do. And I thought, oh, we're not the only one women who have been wounded and and left out of half of life's experience by these old stories. Look at what's happened to these beautiful men, these well-meaning men. They are, they're going to die early. They're going to be left by their families because they can't relax into the grief that you were talking about, about your sister and your father. They are consumed by the flight they have they are fleeing from their own hearts and it's not a good way to live and it ultimately turns into to battle and war and so that's why it's our job now women and men who are in touch with your hearts and aren't afraid to be vulnerable and to ask for help and to admit faults and to ask for directions uh, it's our time it is our time Oh, that's so beautiful. It's so easy to, as a woman, say, look what I've been denied. And we forget, look what these men have been denied, too. Um, we used to work a lot with Team Rubicon, a disaster responder and and veterans group. They deploy to areas after hurricanes and after um, earthquakes. And it's 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 all former military men and women, lots of men. And one of the things I loved about their leadership was that they would talk about, well, let's be overt about mental health challenges. Listen, we're going to schedule a meeting, but we can't make it at 11 because, remember, you've got anger management at 11, so let's not do it then. Or, hey, I, we're going to circle up and and really talk about how that went. Let's debrief. What did it feel like to be responding um, when my husband was overseas in, in the Philippines? What was that like to tend to people who were in the aftermath of a disaster? What did that bring up for you? Did that remind you at all of your experiences when you were a soldier? Using this work, um, your, bringing your strength to, to this, but also flipping it and say, how, what do I need from these disaster responses? That giving, again, men a place to put voice to their feelings and their grief. Brene Brown wrote the Atlas of the Heart recently, that the book with that lists, I don't remember if it's 89 feelings, but I brought it. I'm a, I'm a high school teacher, so I brought it into my classroom at the beginning of this semester. And I, and I told the students, all right, pick your feelings. And the guys, one of my guys is like, Jelani said, no one has ever asked me to say my feelings before. Yeah. And it, he wrote one of the most beautiful essays I'd read about how he was feeling on the threshold of his senior year, the expectations from his family and his community, what he had bubbling up in his heart. And I gave him the book, right, gave him permission to to put voice to his feelings. What a great gift. Beautiful work. The best work. To me, the best work are teachers who are helping their students, girls and boys, because it's not only boys who 
feel ashamed to live in their feelings. We feel it too, because it's been told to be something we shouldn't rely on. It's untrustworthy. It's, it's going to get us in trouble. So I feel educators who are helping boys feel proud to have feelings, to know their feelings, to feel empathy, giving girls the capacity to respect all the parts of them that are like an emotional self. I just think it's probably the most important work that anyone is doing right now. I, I loved to go to um, teacher workshops and conferences and, and I'd get all these big ideas and, oh, these motivational quotes. And I would go back to my classroom and I would think, OK, now, wait, what? How do I put this into practice? <laughs> and so I love that about at the end of Cassandra Speaks, you've got, hey, if you want to practice these ideas, here's how you can do it. And one of them has to do with Take someone to lunch. Have a conversation with someone you know that you disagree with and just meet them. Don't try to change their mind, but just listen to them. And I, um, I know for one, we all need that right now. And mm-hmm. I was grateful that you reminded us of, of that. Yeah. I actually give some how-tos in the book. And I did a TED Talk on it. Um, And you can watch the TED Talk. It's called Take the Other to Lunch. I will link to that for folks in in the show notes. Um, One of my favorite things you say in Marrow is actually about how you believe that as you've grown older and wiser, you're actually becoming younger. I'm paraphrasing it there. But this, this idea that as you grow older, you've actually become younger. And I'm wondering if you still think that's true. And if so, how can it be? I do feel, let's put it this way, the body ages, and that is no joke. And it's not that easy. And, but on the other hand, my spirit does feel younger, because I don't care anymore, really what people think about me. And I'm not trying to prove myself, which I spent so much of my female life trying to do because I was in, you know, I was running a conference center, writing books, I was speaking, I was overcome with the imposter syndrome for most of my professional life and battling it and was causing a lot of strain and, and fear and I don't have the imposter syndrome anymore what a unbelievable liberation but it's taken me a long long time I'm in my 60s it's taking me a long time and it does make me feel younger because the soul is ageless and the spirit is ageless it's the ego and the body that ages and so the more I let go of my ego identification and just kind of play in this amazing realm of consciousness. Um, the younger I feel, the more it's not even younger. I feel ageless. I feel eternal. Oh, I feel eternal. I love that. I'm taking a Taekwondo class with my son right now. It's he's nine. 
I am much more arts than Marshall. And they they had a like a bring your parent buddy. It was it was a one time deal. Bring your parent to class. And um, at first my husband's going to go and then and then he and I talked about it and thought, you know what? It would be better if I go, you know, have him see moms can be strong. I had no intention of continuing. But afterwards, my son, my nine-year-old Henry said, hey, mom, do you want to come back with me some more? Oh, who could say no? And you can't say no, right? All I could no. think about was it's really a class for kids and all the other parents <laughs> get to sit and play on their phones. And I and and a large part of me was 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 in this moment concerned about well, what will the other parents think? Will they think I don't know that it's a class for kids or or and I thought, who cares? My nine-year-old said, Mom, will you come with me and do this thing that I love? The only answer to give is yes. And I have been surprised by how weirdly meditative it is. I don't want to kitch, kick or punch anyone. I don't need a belt of any color. I am there because my son said, will you come with me to this thing that I love? Mm-hmm. And I said yes. And I'm even finding some poetry in the movements of, I, I, I would, for me, it's kind of like Tai Chi. I know these are different martial yeah. arts, but I'm, I'm yeah. trying to get my body to feel strong. I think as women, you know, the word strong was not always a word that I was raised to aspire to, but I like to feel strong. <laughs> I could talk to you all day, but I, I'm told we have time limits. So we always wrap with just a few, um, I call them icebreakers. Uh, I'm sure you guys have a number of these at the Omega Institute, but these are just um, quick little questions. So I'm going to give you some multiple choice. Um, dogs or cats? Neither. Coffee or tea? <laughs> Coffee. Mountains or beach? Both. <laughs> Cake or pie? <laughs> pie. Early bird or night owl? Night owl. And are you a risk taker or the person who always knows where the band-aids are both and See, now, that's that that's not a that's you gotta drop that question <laughs> I okay think, i think really that, yeah we're, we're done with that question because <laughs> you really if you're going to be a risk taker don't you shouldn't you know where the band-aids are and I mean, and what is to being a risk taker even mean maybe it means taking care of people and putting band-aids on them so we're going to get rid of that question I love well, I love this reframing of it that I think any binary is a false binary anyway. So any any time mm-hmm. I give you two choices. But yeah, the idea that sometimes it's a risk to say I'm sorry. Sometimes it's yeah. a risk to say I love you or even a risk right. to say no. Yeah. Or I a risk that. to say I need a Band-Aid yes. for my heart. Oh, that's so wonderful. So now I have to keep the question just so I can get answers like that. I don't know. <laughs> All right. Now these are these are a couple of short answer. Um, what's something quirky about you or just something that you like or a love or a pet peeve? Just something maybe folks don't know. Um, well, I am. A, I love stand up comedy. Um, really? I just watch any comedy, even the ones we're not supposed to love, like <laughs> Louis C.K. and people like that. I love stand-up. I'd love to be a stand-up comic, but that's not going to happen. But I love the timing and the risk-taking and the sacred cow blowing up-ing. 
Oh, I can see. First off, I never would have guessed that because so much so much of stand-up comedy can be so misogynistic so but that also points true. to these but it also points to these larger truths right that i you you laugh totally. because it's true because it's funny because oh you know it should be different and you haven't figured out it's naming it right it's giving voice it's to it it's naming it if we don't name it we can't react to it and so comic comedy names stuff and then thank goodness sometimes we shut them down but I like to laugh. What do you love about where you live? Um, I love the mountains. I love the fact I live in the town of Woodstock, New York. So it has a lot of weirdos and artists <laughs> and also a lot of conservative mountain people. And like, it's a real mashup of a town. That's wonderful. What's one of your go-to songs? I love the old stuff. Like uh, Van Morrison is one of my favorite old timies. I love newer stuff like Bon Iver and a lot of alternative rock. Um, I love all music. I use music all the time to help me. Um, what's your favorite book or movie or both? Oh, that's really not fair. I know. You could just say one of your favorite books or movies or both because you've got about 100 books behind you right now. So... Oh, yeah, I'm just a, a reader deluxe. Um, I'm rereading a book that set me on my spiritual path. It's called The Seven-Story Mountain by Thomas Merton. Thomas, Thomas Merton. Merton. And I, I, it was the first overtly spiritual book I ever read in my freshman year of college. And I decided to check out if it stood up the test of time. And some of it is so great. And some of it, I'm like, how did I tolerate that back then? <laughs> so it's great. I love rereading books. I reread um, Anna Karenina recently, which was so instructive to reread Tolstoy, to see both what I loved about it and what I find now as a feminist untenable. But was there still a train? This time when you read it, was there still a train? <laughs> the train, train? was, ah. the train was still there. And, okay, I'm not rereading it if it still had a train. But Thomas Merton, I also read as a freshman in college, and I've never revisited. I might have to check so it out now that I'm not reading it under duress of having to write a paper. Uh-huh. <laughs> uh, what's your favorite flavor of ice cream? Coffee, but it keeps me up at night. So if only they made decaf coffee ice decaf. cream all right all, for all the listeners in the ice cream business i second this motion I, I love coffee ice cream but i'm often getting ice cream at night and i can't have a scoop right. it, and so i forego it decaf coffee ice cream you heard it here folks you've got two <laughs> sales uh we're 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 listening exactly <laughs> yep oh and the last one if we were to take a picture of you really happy and doing something you love what would we see you doing? Definitely being with my grandchildren, the loves of my life, Aww. the most happy producing beings for me. Yeah. Oh, grandbaby snuggles. That's perfect. Yeah, just the best. Wow. Well, Elizabeth Lesser, thank you for 
Thank you for coming on the show today. For weeks before this conversation, I have these many moments of panic. I wanted to be ready and, and reread all your books and show you my post-it notes and impress you with my keen <laughs> intellect and my knowledge. And um, But instead, I kept coming back to this quote that you shared when you yourself were nervous. I think you were giving a TED Talk with Madeleine Albright, who was either in front or behind you. And you, you, you shared this advice that you got that said... They don't need you to perform for them so they know how good you are. They need you to love them so they know how good they are. I have mm. taken that mantra into my classroom. I brought that mantra here. You and I met 45 minutes ago, but I feel like I've known you for years. I, I love you. I love your work and your infinite capacity to awaken in all of us our own infinite capacities for joy and creation. So thank you for being here. You're an awesome, awesome interviewer. I have been interviewed by so many people, including Brene Brown, and you <laughs> rock. You rock it. You're so good. Oh my gosh. You're so you're so informed and kind and open. Please keep doing what you do. You're great. Oh, my goodness. I <laughs> thank you. That's the nicest compliment ever. Thank you. Folks, our guest today has been Elizabeth Lesser. She's the author of great books, including Marrow, Broken Open, her most recent Cassandra Speaks. Any of these will just blow your mind. Um, Elizabeth and Cassandra Speaks, you said where you wrote that the past is laced into the present on the needle and the thread of stories. Thank you for lacing your past into our present here. I'm just so grateful for your truth. Um, folks, be good to yourselves and be good to one another. And we'll see you again soon on this wild and precious journey. Wild Precious Life is a production of Evergreen Podcasts. Special thanks to executive producers, Gerardo Orlando and Michael D'Aloya. Producer, Sarah Wilgrube and audio engineer Ian Douglas. Be sure to subscribe and follow us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Maybe this pandemic has been awesome for you. Life's better, everything's rosy, and you just made a million dollars. Or maybe you're like me. Maybe this has been an incredibly hard couple of years. Maybe you've made some changes, good changes, and it hasn't panned out in quite the way you hoped it would. If any of this resonates, then I want to invite you to escape into life with us at Shelter in Place. We're a podcast that started as a way to grapple with the pandemic reality, but what we quickly became was a way to rewrite life through creativity and community. If you enjoy This American Life, On Being, or Snap Judgment, I think the chances are pretty good you'll like Shelter in Place. Here's what it sounds like. Some days, all I want to do is escape. I'm not just talking about getting out of my house. I'm talking about standing in a cathedral of redwoods, or the one time I saw the northern lights. That feeling that I'm part of something bigger. Escape can be small, too like the checkout worker who knows me even though we've never seen each other's faces, or the friend who hugs me and won't let go. That kind of escape flips a switch. It reminds me that even when the world is on fire, there is also beauty and delight. I can let my guard down. For a moment, I'm home.
Welcome to Shelter in Place, a podcast about embracing the journey in a world forever changed. We spent season two on a pandemic odyssey that brought us from one coast to the other and back again. In season three, we're bringing you stories in search of home. What do I want to welcome back into my life and what do I want to leave behind? We're not sure what home looks like anymore, but we know what we want from it. I want to know that I belong here. Not because of what I accomplished or earned, but because of who I am. I want a home where we don't pretend that our world isn't broken, but we're creating beauty from that brokenness. We're exploring how to be human in a way that feels expansive rather than exhausting. We're learning how to escape not out of life, but into it. Listen wherever you get podcasts or head to shelterinplacepodcast.org to join us on this journey in search of home. Hello, and welcome to Novel Conversations, a podcast about the world's greatest stories. I'm your host, Frank Lavallo, and for each episode of Novel Conversations, I talk to two readers about one book, and together, we summarize the story for you. We introduce you to the characters, we tell you what happens to them, and we read from the book along the way. So if you love hearing a good story, you're in the right place. Our ninth season is coming this fall. Tune in to hear from some of the all-time great authors, Charles Dickens, Jules Verne, F. Scott Fitzgerald, and more. Subscribe to Novel Conversations wherever you listen to podcasts.